0: Welcome to the Silicon Slopes Conversations. We're here with Paul Walker as the CEO of Franklin Covey. How are you doing?
1: Doing great. Thanks for having me.
0: You bet. Thank you for taking the time. I know you're busy. And thank you everyone for, uh, for being here. Um, let's start with, for those that don't know, just a quick little summary of what is Franklin Covey, what do you guys do? So some of you are probably
1: thinking, why is... Why is the paper planner company that my mom used to use talking to to a group at Silicon slopes, right? So, uh, Franklin Covey, we've been around, uh, the company was formed. Uh, Franklin Covey became a company 25 years ago this year, but it was the, the Franklin side of the organization and the Covey side of the organization have actually been around for more than 40 years independently. Franklin you'll remember if you're from Utah was the paper planner productivity you know, pre-technology—that was kind of all the rage. Retail stores in every mall in the country, and then the Covey side. Stephen Covey wrote the book *The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People*, and they were a leadership consulting and training company. And both companies merged 25 years ago. And today, we're a we're a company helping organizations drive the impact they want to have through their through their people, and uh, recognizing that. What we're all after is making sure that the people that come to work every day have the right capabilities and skills, but also the right mindset and behavior that's attached to the things we really need, the things we're trying to drive as organizations. And so we're focused intently in four areas, helping organizations build really effective leaders, build the habits of effectiveness inside everybody in the organization, working on uh, developing high trust, winning cultures inside organizations, and how do you pull all that together to make sure that you can execute strategy. So at at the highest level, that's what we do. And the two big markets we serve are organizations of all sizes, companies, organizations, and then we have a division that focuses exclusively on K-12 education, teaching leadership skills to students in about 6,000 schools around the world.
0: Very cool. And so you were here um, about two years ago, and I like when uh, guests repeat kind of in that timeline because a lot happens in two years, right? What have you guys been focused on from a company perspective over the last two years?
1: So if I remember right, two years ago, there was no one here because it was the middle of COVID. A lot has happened. A lot's happened since Friday afternoon last week, it feels like. Uh, So in the last two years, our primary focus has been to complete and advance a big transition we started making eight years ago. So eight years ago, we were not a subscription SaaS-like company at all. We were, we were not very much uh, a technology company. We developed good, I think, really good intellectual property, but the way we went to market, the way we engaged our clients was, we'd try to find one problem, we'd try to sell one solution to that problem. It was relatively kind of analog. We'd show up and train people or engage people. Hi, Jordan. For uh, you know, two to three days at a time. And eight years ago, we, we said, That's, we're not serving our clients the best way that we can. We have tremendous amount of content and tools and capability that can help our clients, but we're not bringing really any of that to bear. We're bringing one piece of that to bear against one singular problem. And we, we didn't set out to actually become a subscription or more SaaS-like company. Those weren't even words we were using. We just thought there's a but we have more resources at our disposal that we could use to help our clients and so we stepped across and said what if we pivoted our business to you for what you used to pay for access to our content for a single person for one piece of content we're gonna sell you access to everything that we have and we originally kind of dubbed it our it was our resource model you're gonna you're gonna gain access to all of Franklin Covey's resources And our clients started to give us really good feedback saying this is much better because we're trying to solve a number of problems simultaneously. And now we have the whole arsenal, so to speak. And for us, it was great because we went from being across the table with our clients to being on the same side of the table saying you now are an owner of everything we have. How can we help you drive the most usage possible of that? Our auditors said that's a subscription business. And we said, no, 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 it's not, because we didn't want to go through the accounting transition and as a public company. And they said, no, that's a subscription business. So we became a subscription company. And then we recognized, hey, there's a tech component to this that could really accelerate it. And so we've been working hard within that subscription business to become much more of a tech company as well. And so the last two years, we've, we acquired a company called Strive. It was uh, based in San Francisco. That was a big acquisition for us. And we've been integrating that and uh, just trying to advance what what has been working well and trying to get it to work even better.
0: Yeah. And, um, you know, for like earnings calls and people buying stock, that is like sticky, right? And there's recurring revenue mm-hmm. and it, it helps with projections and, uh, and all of that. So as you guys are transitioning into this business model, um, what were some things that you thought were applicable to this type of model? Uh, and you turned out to be correct, and what were some kind of curveballs that you weren't aware of?
1: So you told me there's only 30 or 35 minutes, so curveballs would take, We could, I could spend hours on curveballs, but unlike many of, I imagine, you here today, we we were not born as a SaaS subscription company, right? We, we were not that, as I just described, and so it was a big transition for us, and uh, as a public company to go through that transition, we had, we had some investors that just said, you know, we've seen this movie play out before and it hasn't worked great. It's a tough transition to make. We'll kind of back out and watch from the sidelines. And we had others, thankfully, that really hung in there. And, uh, and we, we were convicted though. We felt like if we could come up with a better way to serve our clients, it was going to turn out to be better for us. And so we, we made the decision and said, okay, we're not looking back on this. Uh, the things that did work well Uh, because it's such a better way for our clients. We do have recurring revenue now, and it's sticky. We didn't have that before. That was really hard. It was hard to wake up every year and have to kind of start over and recreate all of last year before you had a dollar of growth. So that's changed, and the growth trajectory of the company has changed as a result. So that's been a positive thing. It has driven more enterprise value. I think it's been good for our shareholders. I know it's been good for our associates and our clients uh, lots of things along the way that didn't pan out exactly like we thought. If you make a change that's that, that big, as you all know, you, you kind of end up, once you, if you change the business model that fundamentally, you kind of end up changing everything over time, right? All of your, who you who you hire, the talents and capabilities you need, what's gonna happen with your culture, the way you compensate people, the internal systems, the way you account for every dollar of revenue. I mean, there's kind of a wagon wheel of issues and we've kind of had to work through all of those over the last number of years. But thankfully that's mostly in the rear view mirror now and and, uh, it's been been a fun journey, hard journey, but fun journey.
0: Yeah, probably pretty rewarding. And um, we don't have a lot of public companies that are on this stage usually, but you also have to factor in the public markets and the stock price and your biggest shareholders. So you have to kind of sell the vision too, or if you're a private company, it's like, we're going to do this. How do you go about communicating effectively kind of with some added pressure, right? Cause this is kind of what you guys do as part of leadership is communicate effectively and instill trust, but the buck kind of stops with you. I know you have a great team to support that, but what were the communication methods like to inform everyone? So in this regard where, where we are public
1: and maybe many here are not it, it it's it is different but it's not different at the same time we all have the same primary constituencies right our our associates inside our organizations are a major constituency our clients are a major constituency and then our our owners or our shareholders are a major constituency right and so it's it's three legs of the same stool that you want to keep all balanced and try you want to try to win with all three of those 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 groups and And so, uh, again, we were were convicted. It did require a lot of explaining and telling and being very intentional about trying to understand what we thought that journey would be like. And then also acknowledging that there were going to be, you know, for us, reported revenue went like that, right? Because we took all of that revenue that we used to recognize the time we sold it, and we had to defer it and put it out on the balance sheet and then bring it back on over the course of the next year. And so just getting clear on what the models were uh, what was very helpful, actually, is we went to look early in and we said, okay, who else has gone on a journey like this? And it so happens that Adobe went on a very similar journey as a public company. They converted, they pivoted from boxed so- software as their primary income stream to moving to their cloud-based SaaS model, and and we, we poured through their earnings reports and we built a, a model that said, okay, here's what happened. Their box software business fell off. At the same time, intentionally, at the same time, they were driving their SaaS subscription cloud business, and that 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 the decline of the one while the other was growing pulled down the overall growth rate of the company for a while. And we said, "Yeah, I'll bet that's going to happen for us." And that became actually a really helpful example, to 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 show our investors what we thought the journey would look like for us like hang in there this is going to happen but we think that's going to happen and if you put the two charts side by side today now we'd love to have adobe's revenue scale and all of that we don't but it's almost the exact same chart um scale's a little different but the exact same chart and that was really helpful so really being intentional and not trying to hide the ball like like be transparent open because i think that's what people want to know is do you have a sense for what you think is going to happen and you're going to get credit for doing what you, what you said you would do and for it happening like you thought it would happen. You'll actually get more credit for that than you will for trying to overstate and then underdeliver. And I think, I think that's what people really want to know. Is this a company and a leadership team that we, ha- we can have confidence in? We recognize it's not always going to go perfect. In fact, we know it's not going to go perfect. These people that are analysts out there are covering many, many, many companies. And at any given time, it's not going great for for many of them. But they're looking at the long term trend and trajectory, at least hopefully they are if they're they're an owner of your company.
0: Yeah, for sure. Uh, I like that you uh, didn't have to reinvent the wheel because you found some others that had already done it and uh, probably saved a lot of uh, time and energy. Um, You guys have a lot of of offerings, a lot of courses, a lot of classes. Um, Which ones? are the oldest and the most venerable and second question, how do you guys come up with, with new stuff?
1: So the, the, the oldest and most venerable continue to be the, the seven habits of highly effective people, uh, which, which is, is, I I think probably the all time biggest selling training development oriented program in, in, Of all time it's it's grossed more than a couple billion dollars over the 40 years between training consulting book sales etc I'm not sure there's much that would be in that same category Uh, the Franklin Covey time management process has gone through a lot of different iterations I don't see anybody carrying a paper planner here today uh, but, and so we're not, we're, we're tool agnostic today, but still the same principles of, look, there are certain things that are more important than others, and how do you spend your time on those things and organize your life around what's most important, the things you value, you know, the big rocks, so to speak. Uh, so we still do a lot there. And, and, and then uh, the topics like the four disciplines of execution, that's been around for more than a, about 15 years. How do you get everybody in the organization pulling together and focusing? Uh, on the same few critical things so so a lot of the old uh, older that we keep refreshing, and then a lot of new things we brought to market. We brought stuff on unconscious bias and inclusive leadership. Our clients want that in a big way right now uh, there's We just launched a new offering on um, trust and inspire, kind of a whole different way of thinking about leading with all the different generations in the workplace today and all the expectations on leaders to not just produce results, but actually do it in a way that builds culture. And so so a good mix of old and new, we're a subscription business. So we gotta be bringing out new stuff all the time. So, this, so the second part of your question, we have an innovations team and that's what they do is is build solutions or look for great, and they sometimes they'll look for great thought leadership that's out there that others have written about and we'll go license that IP and incorporate that into our solutions as well. We recognize that, we don't have the answer to everything. Um, and, and even if we have an opinion on it, we might not have the best opinion. So we're looking for external folks as well that we can incorporate into our solutions.
0: Yeah. So, um, let's just make up a scenario of, of, how it works. Let's say you meet somebody and they've, they've got a 3000 person corporation and, um, they learn what you do and you guys hit it off and they, they would like to engage. Um, In my younger years, I subjected to some of these where you kind of mentioned uh, you'd come in, somebody'd come in for two or three days, and then it was kind of done, right? Like you either absorbed it or you didn't. Um, Let's say this company, you know, becomes a customer. How would the training, the classes, all of this, be disseminated to to the company? Yeah,
1: great question. Um, I, I don't know if I liked your use of the word "subjected." It wasn't you guys. I'm just kidding. I'm just joking. Uh, so, so what you just described is the holy grail of our industry. So the, the, the challenge in our industry for the, the, for all time that people have been trying to focus on learning and development and equipping people inside their organizations with the right skills and capabilities is that historically it's been a series of events and those events are hard to actually correlate to real behavior change. Did it really make a difference? right you you bring your team in they spend a day traveling to get there they come in for a day or two and then they spend a day traveling back home and they're already so far behind on work that you know very little of it actually seeps in and you don't see a lot of measurable behavior change uh, doesn't mean it's not helpful but it's not as helpful as it would be if there's a different approach and so that's what if you if you want to talk about what's what's what do we hope and think that is different and unique about Franklin Covey First, the the quality of the offerings and the content themselves and the way that they're built to actually shift somebody's paradigm, their mindset, that's a fundamentally different thing. The fact that the content's focused on lasting, enduring principles of human effectiveness, not like the latest fad. So different, where we're focused is, you can go anywhere and find like, here are the 10, here's the checklist for how to have an effective performance review and you can teach me how to do that and once a year I can go through that and make sure I follow the checklist but it's a fundamentally different thing to adopt the paradigm or the mindset that as a leader every opportunity with somebody on my team is an opportunity to have a performance conversation that ought to be what we're talking about all the time and so we we want we live on that side of course we're going to give you a tool as well but we want to get the mindset shifted in the first place because you'll lead in a fundamentally different way forever if you can get the right mindset so that's infused in all of our content but to your specific question all the research shows and we know this too that taking what was a one or two day thing and actually spreading it out over time so it's a journey somebody's on is much better for behavior change and this is where technology really helps so when you engage with us you're going on a journey that's a mix of uh, you might have come in in person if you're going to have a team off-site or you might have just had a series of 90 minute live online via zoom or microsoft team sessions where a franklin covey Facilitator is guiding a cohort through, pushing on them, asking hard questions. They're wrestling through issues. And then in between those 90-minute sections, we're serving up content asynchronously. Uh, here's a little video here. Here's something to remind you. Here's, here's a commitment you made in the last cohort session. Why don't you, you know, apply this? So we're doing a mix of teaching and application and reminder and reinforcement over a period of time. There's often a pre and post assessment where, where you're able to gather feedback to understand how you know how you're doing now versus how you were doing versus how you're doing now and so it's a it's a journey over time that we're supporting somebody and we're fitting that all into the seams of their work day and their work week so it's you know kind of very relevant as opposed to oh yeah next quarter I'm going to go get trained and then I'm going to go back to work that's that's not as
0: effective yeah and you know if. For- Somebody buys uh, your products and your services, um, and they want to disseminate it across the whole company or half of it. Um, I've been caught in trainings that are online where somebody says, "Did you finish?" I said, "You know it," yeah. and they're like, "No, you didn't." I'm like, "Oh, sorry, I just lied to you." Not a good feeling, right? Um, do you find that like the the leader, the the person that solidified the relationship, requires everyone to to finish? The training to finish the courses is it voluntary how does it work
1: yeah so good question there's let there you just maybe speak to like the, the landscape of our industry so our industry if you think of it as a continuum you have on one end of the continuum you have the consulting firms bain mckinsey even corn to a degree but in, in, whoever you're you know think of whoever your favorite consulting firm is and they're they they do they do good work. It doesn't scale very well down through the organization. On the other end of the continuum, you have the companies that are built completely for scale, the large, the large library providers, LinkedIn, learning, Coursera, Udemy, et cetera. And they're built for scale, but not necessarily built for the same kind of impact over here. And so what you have here on this side is the challenge of scale. And over here you have the challenge where the, the results are measured by completion rates and usage. But completion rates and usage, and you just, you just acknowledge that there might not even be a completion rate or very much usage, but that also doesn't necessarily correlate to improved organizational performance, right? Because 3,000 people can go in now and choose what they want to go develop themselves in, which is I'm not poo-pooing that. That's helpful. But what are the, what's the likelihood that all 3,000 people are going to pick the critical areas that the organization actually needs to develop capability in that are aligned with the strategy of where the tr- organization is trying to go? So we're, we're this alternative in the middle which we, we believe delivers great impact, is also scalable, but is much more tied to the initiatives and the, the critical capabilities the organization is trying to develop. And because it's tied to those initiatives and to the things that really matter, usage no longer becomes a problem because it's the expectation that um, people are going to go through this as part of this larger initiative we're working on. So we enjoy quite high utilization and usage. We're also not at all on the, on the compliance side. Like, I get those requests as well. A lot, you know, the compliance-based things where you're like, okay, I hope this is the one where the quiz is at the end and I didn't have to go all the way through, and if I'm smart enough, I could just answer the quiz questions and get it done in five minutes. Not, that's not our stuff at all, right? We're on, the, we're on this other stuff over here. So, so, um, and and I, I, we think it's pretty enjoyable stuff that's not only applicable to me at work, but it helps me in my, in my whole life. And uh, so, so fortunately, high levels of enjoyment, really high MPS scores uh, by both the learners and the buyers of what we do.
0: Yeah. And at some point, whether it's a SaaS model or sponsorship, whatever it is, it, um, you will need to meet with them again and see if they want to renew, yeah. be upsold, um, whatever it is. And uh, how do those usually work? Whether you know, it's a two-year contract, oh, it's coming up, we'd like to meet again so
1: our contracts are all uh, minimum one year we uh we the full year is charged and paid for up front it's not a monthly contract it's an annual contract uh when we started just you're gonna laugh at this but we we had never conceived of the idea of a multi-year contract seems kind of funny but we hadn't and about a year and a half into this we were at an investor conference and an investor came and said hey have you ever considered multi-year contracts and we we're like uh no, but we probably ought to consider that so today uh, about 50 percent of our contracts are multi-year about 65 percent of our subscription revenue is multi-year that's been a big game changer for us uh, so two-year or longer contracts uh, we'd like that number to continue to increase now we don't even offer we, I mean we'll do a one-year contract but we position multi-year contracts out of the gate and that works well because the the, the progress our clients are trying to make they're not gonna get it done these are larger initiatives to try to transform your culture doesn't happen in a quarter or even in a year these are longer term initiatives uh to answer your question specifically once somebody becomes a client then our customer success organization meets every quarter in a quarterly business review uh the third of those four quarterly business reviews is our annual business review and it's in there where we're securing the renewal you know a quarter ahead with our clients and and fortunately uh, the, the re the retention rates have been quite good, uh, uh, since we
0: launched. Very cool. So it could be summarized in like one sentence, right? Like, Hey, Paul and team, we are seeing the results. We're going to re up again. Right. That's yeah, you, the, what you'd like.
1: I could have said it that way too. Yeah. yeah.
0: <laughs> but, um, I don't do anything in one sentence. <laughs> no, no The explanation was great. Um, and that's gotta be a good feeling, right? Cause it's their decision, right? They might've been in a board meeting before and be like, is this working? No, cut it. Is this? Yes. And then they tell you, and that's gotta be rewarding. And financially it's awesome, but for you and your team that put all the blood, sweat into like, yeah. it's gotta be great.
1: Yeah, we, we have a mantra we throw around internally, it's clients for life. We, we, we do not wanna lose a client and uh, we'll go to extraordinary lengths to try to understand why for whatever reason it didn't work and how we, and everybody does that. Right. But it's, it's a, it's a painful thing to lose a client. It's like, shoot, we didn't, somehow we, you know, and, and not always is it in our control, but we, we assume it was always in our control. Right. And we're, we're a proactive bunch. That's the first of the seven habits, be proactive. And we want to do everything we can and and we try, but it is very gratifying when clients do stick with you. And we've had clients that have stuck with us now for all eight years. We have clients that are on, you know, six-year contracts with us and re-upping those because they're they're, they're quite pleased.
0: Yeah. Um, possible pitfall might be like if there's a leadership change, you know, the CEO or the key point of contact leaves, retires, or probably worse, gets fired. Um, how do you guys manage those situations?
1: Yeah, that's the biggest risk for us for non-renewal is that the person who purchased initially is no longer in their role. And so... To, you know, we can't perfectly combat that, but part of our customer success approach is, is, you know, job one is launch the thing they purchased so that they can get, off, get started and get using it and start to see value from the against the original job they had. But job two, right on the heels of that, is to start to hunt for additional decision makers and additional populations that we could serve. So we're very much a land and expand model. Um, our average customer does you know, about $34,000 or so in their first year. But the average customer we have is is doing about $76,000 today. So we land and expand. And uh, part of that is to find these additional decision makers. And that not only does that help with expansion, it kind of inoculates us against that original buyer who may not be there at the time of renewal. So it's an intentional, we're scoreboarding, do we have the second potential decision maker or the third potential decision maker sometime during that first year of them being a subscribing client?
0: Yeah, There's going to be all sorts of little nuggets here for public companies, big companies, small companies, but land and expand is probably a good business principle in general. Yeah. Um, Let's talk a little bit more about the K through 12 offering you guys have. I don't know that much about it, but um, I assume it's for both like principals, teachers, superintendents, but then the kids. Um, How long has this been going on? And I'm more interested in like the kids. Uh, learning leadership right because've you 've heard the argument that they 're either made or born I think they 're made, um, but how does it work with kids versus adults? Okay great question. This is a cool business we have uh, so first
1: of all, our mission statement at Franklin Covey is that we enable greatness in people and organizations everywhere, and uh, this is an, it's an important statement for us embedded in that statement are two grand assertions that one is that the potential for greatness resides inside every individual now i have teenagers at home and there are some mornings where that potential i believe the potential is there but i'm not seeing much evidence of it Uh, but the potential is there nonetheless and the second is that because the potential is there it can actually be brought to the fore. Like, there are things that you can do to, to, that, that we can help do that helps others tap into their potential or that they can do to tap into that potential themselves. And, and so that's true of, of us that work for organizations, and it's also true of, of kids, right? And so what happened, I'll be, I'll be brief here, about uh, 12 years ago, there was a principal at a school in Raleigh, North Carolina, and this school had been, a, had been deemed a magnet school. And uh, they were about to become demagnetized. So they were failing on almost every metric that schools get measured by. And they were going to move from being, you know, held up as a magnet school to being demoted to, you know, not a magnet school. It It was a big deal. The principal of that school happened to have the opportunity to go hear Stephen Covey speak. He was in the area. And she listened to him. This is before he passed away. She listened to him speak. And she went and waited in line after and said, Dr. Covey, I have a question for you. I'm a principal at a school here. Is it possible to adapt to what you've just talked about to kids in elementary schools? And Stephen said, I don't see why not. And uh, you got to give it a try. And so she did. Her name is Muriel Summers. And um, Muriel went back and worked and worked at at figuring out how she could instill the principles from the seven habits initially into uh, the daily lives of these students, and the school culture and results completely flipped and transformed over the next couple of years. Well, we found out about this. We had a small little fledging fledgling education business that was doing like three million dollars a year. It was kind of just a side thing, and we went down and studied that and said there is really something here. We'd like to codify this, and so we worked with her and we codified it into a, a program called the Leader in Me, and that business today is now about a seventy million dollar business and. Um, uh, doesn't have the same margin profile as the rest of our business, right? It's education. We try to think carefully about that. Uh, but there are about 6,000 schools that use this. And what it is is it's a, it's a whole school transformation program. And, and we go in and work with the administrators and the teachers. And they teach primarily the seven habits of highly effective people, which is around character development. And the four disciplines of execution, which is around how do, you, how, do, how do students take more responsibility, set goals for their own academic outcomes and achievements. And it is the coolest thing. When you go visit a leader in me school, the responsibility for leading has been transitioned to the kids. The teachers and the, and the faculty no longer lead in these schools. The kids all lead. They're all given a leadership responsibility, all 500 of them. I'm, I'm responsible for greeting every new person that comes, right? And they're at the door there to shake your hand and greet you. And so they're learning these skills of resilience, self-leadership, communication, all these things that that we need and that kids are really struggling with right now. The world has become a harder place than ever for everybody, but especially for kids in school. It's super divisive. There's bullying, all kinds of problems. and And educators can't cut through all that noise to do what their original job was, was to teach reading and writing and arithmetic, right? You can't, they can't get through the interference. And the leader in me kind of inoculates against that interference because the students themselves are becoming much stronger leaders of themselves. And then that translates back into their families and their communities. It's a really, really cool business. Sean Covey, Stephen Covey's son, actually runs that division for us. Uh, he would be a cool person to have come talk sometime. It's a really, really amazing business.
0: Yeah, I'm sure we could, uh... Talk for a long time about that one and it sounds cool and uh you know you're obviously excited about franklin covey and your duties there but you've perked up quite a bit when you were talking about that one which is always a good sign uh that you and it sounds like your entire team genuinely enjoy that that aspect we do it's great yeah and so the the school in in raleigh ultimately was a happy ending oh
1: amazingly happy ending yeah they be they they did not lose their Magnet status, and have gone on to become. Uh, in fact, I think that they became the number one magnet school in the country um, on the back end of that challenging time they had. And like I said, there are now six thousand um, schools using Leader in Me, and uh, we're kind of just at the the beginning. So it's it's the same. We're drawing from the same well of intellectual property and thinking, and we're just adapting that. It's the same skills, right? It's, it's, these are good life leadership skills that if everybody inside a company had them and everybody inside a school had them it's it just becomes an entirely different place the, the level of cooperation trust coordination communication all that goes up and the amount of friction goes down and that's what gets in the way right it's the challenge we all have is not coming up with the right ideas it's figuring out how to get those ideas to scale down through the organization and get people to actually be able to focus on those at the you know instead of other things and and that's really what we're trying to help our clients do is just less friction, more ease, more people on the same page working really well together.
0: Yeah. So just for a business question. Uh, if a elementary school is doing it and they're loving it, they matriculate to a junior high, right? I assume if they're not in the program, they're targeted in the sales cycle to like do it, right? Um, Do you find that like the school districts see successful things happening and then they say, what, what are you doing? And then it just goes out from there.
1: Yeah. So it's a, it's really a K-12 offering. So there's a version of it for K-6. That's a little different application. There's the middle school version. There's a high school version. And uh, when we first started in that business, we kind of sold school by school. Now the sale is really at the district level because the district wants to, wants to continue that. And uh, all the way through,
0: yeah. Very cool, and that's a whole different uh, sales pitch to you know superintendents and principals yeah, than a CEO. Yeah, right? like I
1: said at the beginning, when you change your strategy, you have to change a lot of other things. Selling to superintendents is very different than selling to a principal, and so who you hire, who's going to make that sale, what your marketing team talks about, yeah, it's a it's a it's a different
0: thing. Yeah, I've got a cousin who's a superintendent in rural Nebraska, so we should, should talk. We should, we should talk. talk. All right. I'm always interested in, in your guys' company because you're focused on leadership and improvement and um, values and ethics and making everyone better. Um, that gives you and your team a little bit more pressure to do that internally as well, right? I'm interested in kind of the eating your own dog food question uh, as a skunk works. Um, any validity to that thought of like, it starts with you guys?
1: Yeah, It so... We have to, right? It would be it would be the, the height of hypocrisy to now, to not to not attempt to do that. I think Frank and Covey is a unique place. I think if you came and spent time with us, uh, you would say, All right, you know what, this this largely does really feel and resemble what I thought the company that came out with the seven habits and the speed of trust. I think you would I think you would walk away and say, That's that's what I expected to see. Now on any given day we've got the same warts and problems that, that that anybody else has uh so we're not immune to that but it is we have we have a clear set of values a very clear mission and we're we're very intentional i think the people that are attracted to what we do uh there's a real mission orientation to what we do and we attract people uh, to that mission and so we have a little bit of an advantage maybe that way and that even just those who come in the door um they're already thinking, believing, and buying into that, and that then permeates through the through the culture. But it, but we need to be intentional. We and we use our, we use our stuff, right? We we need all of our leaders trained in the very
0: same things that we're training our, in, our, our clients in. Yeah, and um, I'm sure, it creates a bunch of subject matter experts that, they're not caught off guard by any questions a customer might ask.
1: Yeah, we got it. That, that's yeah, we've got a. Uh, people pay us a a good amount of money to have our people come in and consult and coach and train. Uh, I was, I was in Mexico city this week uh, with one of our large clients. It's one of the largest banks in the world. And they were having an executive team offsite in Mexico city. And uh, we had two of our consultants there for two days. And I was just there for one of the days, but they're expecting that we walk the talk and that, you know, they're, they're, it's, it's not a, inexpensive thing to engage us and so yeah high expectations
0: for sure i've got one or two more questions then we'll open it up to the audience so get your courage up and uh, when would be the best time for a company to engage with you guys is it company size is it revenue is it just they really need it
1: i I would be a poor ceo if i said if i didn't say any time would be a good time to engage Uh, i'll tell you who we tend who we tend to work with. So we work with companies of all sizes. Uh, we tend to see two types of organizations. There's the organizations that are already really quite good, and the fact that they're good means that they recognize and value this, and they recognize the value of becoming even better, right? They they see that the fact that their their culture is good, their leaders are strong, they 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 want more of that. So we tend to work with people who are already doing pretty well and trying to get better or we work with people who have had a real problem and they need to fix it. Uh, that group in the middle is the, it's the dangerous group, right? Because they don't know whether they're good or not, and they haven't had a crisis yet, but they're not necessarily building the capability they're gonna need in the future. So that's just a general observation. As far as when, if you have, if you have leaders and you have people, you, you, you are gonna benefit greatly from having those leaders and those people more effective than not. Right. And so I think it's a question of, you know, how much can you do when you're small? It's hard. Resources are constrained. So you got to be thoughtful about how to do that. You don't have to do it with us. You really don't have to do it with us. But I would suggest that you ought to have a plan for what you're doing to build the kind of culture you want. And it starts with what do you expect of your leaders from a care? You know who they are? How do you, you know who, who do you expect your leaders to be? character how do you expect your leaders to think what actions do you expect your leaders to take because if you get those three things lined up right then the results those leaders achieve will be great if you don't get those three things really intentional then you'll get you know haphazard results and so my my encouragement would be have a plan be proactive and be doing something on this front Um, and you may be of the size where it doesn't make sense to go out and do it with a partner but figure out how to get it done because it'll be a huge catalyst for you
0: um one week ago you penned an article that was published Four Ways Leaders Can Break Through Uncertainty and Unleash Meaningful Innovation. And I've got some some uh, cliff notes here if, if you forget what the four were, but um you kind of said 2023 is going to be interesting and there's going to be some ups and downs and there was one happening that day it was was published I don't know when you wrote it but um Let's talk a little bit about that, and then probably open it up for questions. But um, and you just have to hit a little bit on each one of these. Evolve mindset was number one.
1: Yeah, so uh, it's a little it's a little unfair to write an article about twenty twenty three saying it's going to be a tur- little bit unexpected and turbulent, and have it come out in March when we're already a couple months in. Right? We already know it's been a little bit turbulent, and uh, so that was cheating on my part probably. But. Uh, here's what I would say with, you know, and we can go through all four if you want, but I I would say that uh, Jim Collins wrote a book called Good to Great. Probably familiar with that. And in the book he talked about, it was either in Good to Great or Built to Last. I think it was in Good to Great. He talked about the Stockdale Paradox. And I don't know if anybody's familiar with that, but Admiral Stockdale was a prisoner of war, Vietnam War. And he made it out and he reflected on his experience. And uh, he reflected on the experience of, of others he saw as well who were prisoners of war along with him. And he described a couple, three different kinds of people. There were the people who were the eternal optimists, whose mindset was, it's March, but Easter is coming, and surely we'll be freed by Easter, and Easter would come and go, and they wouldn't be out. And then he said, "Okay, well, sh- you know, we're Americans. The Fourth of July is coming. Surely by the Fourth of July, we're going to be free out of the situation. The Fourth of July would come and go, and they wouldn't be out. And it eventually just crushed them, right? And then he described people on the other side who were completely devoid of hope, and they, 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 they just didn't ever think they were going to get out. And he, the paradox was." that the people who fared best were the people who could hold, you know, kind of both of those truths equal, one in each hand, that they, they maintained a really healthy level of optimism, but they also balanced that with a really clear and healthy level of reality, and I think that, you know, uh, I maybe should have put that in the article instead, but I think that's, that's what, we find ourselves, even at Franklin Covey, we're doing well, but it's a much, it's a more challenging environment for sure today than it was 12 months ago. There's a lot of things going on, some within our control, some without our control. And to be be able to be brutally honest and confront the reality of the situation that we face, but also to be incredibly optimistic about, you know, the future and where we have a chance to go. And I think maintaining the balance between those two things is not only important, at least it's important for me, it's getting out of bed in the morning, you know, you can easily get consumed by all the bad, or you can to your peril, ignore the bad and only be consumed by the positive. Neither of those are good, but I think it also is not great for the people down below you, right? They, you almost don't wanna trust if it all sounds too good, but you don't really know if you should get on board if it all sounds too bad, right? And so I think that's the, that's the balance to try to maintain, especially as things get more difficult. And uh, the other thing I just put in there, I think in the article was, boy, in times like these, we've, we've learned whether it was the great financial crisis or the days of the pandemic, or even back when I first started was the dot-com bubble burst post 9-11. You can't be caught in the thick of thin things in challenging times. Like the organization just can't handle one too many initiatives. You got you to kind of batten down the hatches and really get clear about what are the few things that are going to make the biggest difference and how do you cut through the noise on those few things because there's a lot of noise and interference externally going on right now. And and people can't handle that. You got as a leader, you got to really just bring it back and get really intentional. And people can handle that. Yeah,
0: I think yeah, you're kind of referring to like the focus on the space between the stimulus and response, yeah. right? Yeah. Um, and you guys, as a publicly traded company, you you might get de-cleated by some analyst saying oh, I don't like them anymore, right? And your stock price might go down, but like the, the fundamentals are still there, and if you Run around like a chicken with your head cut off, not yeah. good.
1: None does not help anybody. So,
0: yeah. yeah, I think that is a, a great example. And then, you know, the, create a high level of trust and, and direct uncertainty to challenge. Were the final two.
1: I I think we people people will do amazing things if they feel like they can say. I'm I'm I feel like a valued member of a winning team doing something really meaningful in an environment of trust. And as leaders, if we can create those conditions for our people where they really do, they feel valued, they they feel trusted, they feel like they're doing something that's important and worthwhile, then you're, you're gonna get the best they have to offer. And uh, my experience is when people are able to give the best they have to offer, things end up turning out pretty darn good. Yeah,
0: absolutely. Um when I was little we were we were elk hunting and we shot an elk and it was in a four or five miles away from the nearest road and it was on a mountain and it was starting to storm and we were all uncertain about what to do. A grizzled old veteran came and said, Start harvesting the elk and we will figure it out. But like the challenge of like get this done took all the uncertainty away and uh ultimately it would It was successful. If we were left to our own devices, it probably wouldn't have been. But um, that's another easy one, right? Just there's some uncertainty. Challenge that and get going. Then we'll figure it out. All right. We've got a microphone in the back. Raise your hands if you'd like to ask a question to Paul.
2: Hi. Good to hear from you. Uh, There's good hope for you. Uh, I've gone back to a paper planner. All right, which I'm looking for an old palm because I don't like my middle managers at Microsoft, Apple, Google, and Amazon or MAGA. And uh, uh, so, anyway, trust is an issue, and uh, you really can't trust these devices and the data we put on them. However, my question is LinkedIn. Um, yeah, I. I I can see that probably most of your clients are the sophisticated mid-sized to large companies. You mentioned small business, but do you see LinkedIn and all of the people who are promoting or are trained to promote leadership or motivation or other you know principles that you you focus on? Do you see the, this them as a competing interest, and does it have an impact on you? Do you see LinkedIn as a platform for you and your Franklin Covey? Uh, is there any? Do you have any comments about that?
1: Yeah, great question. Just to clarify, are you are you speaking about LinkedIn Learning, the former Lynda.com company they purchased, that's a training vehicle. Or LinkedIn is like the social media platform.
2: Social media platform yeah. piece, because I understand that piece, but yeah, I wonder if the people pose the you know yeah. compete take business or or you know, take business
1: yourself. Yeah, great, great question. So, so our industry is like extremely fragmented. Uh, if you think about the people that, that you might even work with, you know, every. You know the, the professor of Montana State University has some intellectual property, and in the summers is consulting with clients, right? And has a portfolio of fifteen or twenty clients that she or he is working with. And you have that all the way up to authors who are putting out books every day and and creating platforms for themselves for themselves to go out and speak. On up to you know established companies like Franklin Covey and others. And so there's there's our industry is is uh, there's about. Uh, just shy of 100 billion dollars a year spent globally on the kinds of things we do. It's a huge industry. It's growing and it's it's massively fragmented. We're a 270 million dollar company, and we're one of the larger in the space. 270 million of you know 100 billion dollar spend. That's just the outsource spend with providers. So we see LinkedIn and that as a as a way to get our message out. It's also a way for other people to get their message out as well. Uh, we're, not, we're not as concerned strategically about the individual authors who write a book. Actually, we, we think that's great. That's a place for us to go and look for partnerships. Liz Wiseman wrote a book. I don't know if she's ever done anything with Silicon Slopes, but on uh, the top, this idea of being a leader who's a multiplier. We went to Liz and said, you know what? That fits so well with the way we think about leadership. So we licensed her intellectual property. We built a program, and now we're the primary providers of that. So we'll do that from time to time. Uh, so LinkedIn itself is a great way for I think it's growing the industry overall. It's more eyeballs on it and getting great content to people. So we we like it generally. Uh, Jim Collins' book, uh, another section in there, the the bus. You're getting the right people yeah. on the bus and, and getting the them right on the right seats, seats yeah. and all that. Um, I'm curious uh, what your view is on some of the I call it psycho tools for identifying right people, you know, like uh, handwriting analysis or the Myers-Briggs personality testing and that sort of thing. Um, you know, just using a title to put people together doesn't always often work. So it's a great, it's a great point. So, so, so for those that aren't familiar, Jim talked about the good to great companies. One of the things that the leaders in those companies did is they, 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 they answered the question first, who, and then what so in, instead of answering the question you know, what are we going to do what are we going to be about what's our strategy first let's make sure we have the right people here because the right who's might come up with a, an entirely different strategy and so first who then what and then it was okay get so get the right people on your bus and then make sure they're all in the right seats and the good to great companies did that really really well i think it's a it's a it's a great concept and it's really important to your question specifically i think those tools can be are very helpful either as a as a way to evaluate or as a way for people to get feedback themselves i think we all have blind spots right there's a lot of there's a lot of things that i'm that i have in my life that are blind spots where i think i show up one way but my team thinks i show up another right and so the more that i can be in tune with that and understand we do a lot of surveying and we'll oftentimes ask people when they're going through 360 surveys and things They're rating themselves against a certain set of skills or capabilities. And then there's the 360 feedback where others are rating them. And it's not uncommon to see some pretty wide gaps. And usually the way it works is I see myself as quite proficient here. But those that are giving me feedback don't see me as proficient in those areas. And so that's helpful, right? And so I think those tools are really helpful. Uh, Just one other point. I was down in Atlanta a couple weeks ago, and I met with the chief people officer at Coca-Cola. And uh, so she has a big job, right? She's responsible for the people and people development and people strategy for all of Coca-Cola worldwide. She said that the executive team at Coca-Cola meets once a quarter. And the entire purpose of that meeting is to evaluate the performance of the top 250 leaders in Coca-Cola worldwide. So every two, every, the top 250 leaders are known. Their performance is tracked on a, both their lagging performance, but also their behavioral performance and their culture scores. It's all tracked. It's all reviewed. Feedback is given. None of those 250 spots, if they come open, will be filled by anybody that hasn't already been on the vetted list by the executive team because they recognize that it's so massively strategically important that those top 250 seats, to the point of get them on the bus and in the right seats, that they're filled by the right people because everything downstream either does or doesn't happen based on what's happening with those 250. So the more we can help people understand and we can really evaluate that performance to help coach them, the better.
3: How's it going? Um, I just had a question. You mentioned um, principle fads in current society. And as you know, there's a lot of information out there on like, ooh, this is a really good principle to apply in your life. Um, And Seven Habits of Highly Effective People talk about value-based principles. so what in you? What warnings do you have for principles that should be regarded as fads um, currently for an individual like myself that's young, that's building my life, that I can kind of look out for? And then what principles like have helped you, I mean, even if it's just one, um, in your career and life?
1: Uh, so I think, first of all, I think s- social media is good and bad, right? And we all know that. I'm not going to get into the whole social media thing. But challenge is it's created a platform for everybody to have an opinion on everything And if you're not careful you can confuse opinion for like credible durable enduring fact or uh things that are going really stand the test of time and so uh I, I i i read a lot i consume a lot of things uh i i tend to find myself gravitating towards the things that are more well-researched, more well-grounded, and not kind of the opinion pieces, right? I mean, I, I put stuff out on LinkedIn. It's short form. I'm not saying short form things aren't good, but I think I would, I would, I would, I would look at uh, just is it coming out from organizations or from people who are really on the problem, who are thinking deeply about it, who have who have gone out in the wilderness for 30 years and thought about that, and are really bringing something that that is it's hopefully going to stand the test of time, right? That's the nice thing about something that's principle-based. Is universal principles are universal principles. Gravity's never going to change. That's a it's a universal principle, and there are those out there around human effectiveness and leadership, and and so I think, you know, my my, my advice would be, at least make sure you're you're looking at those. Uh, in terms of like one principle that's helped me, um, I don't know. There's a lot. I will I'll tell you right the one that just popped my mind right now. And this isn't necessarily a principle, but I think it's an important thing. Assume best intent. Like, in the world today, it seems like uh, we're actually willing to assume worst intent out of the gates more than we are willing to assume best intent. And I don't think anybody wakes up in the morning thinking, you know what I'm going to do today? I'm going to try to make the stupidest decision I can make, <laughs> right? Or I'm going to try to, you know, if we just, But but it's it's hard to cut through that because we're kind of only wired to look for the negative and look for the bad examples. And I actually think people are trying to do a pretty darn good job. And if it didn't come out the way that you hoped it would, it probably wasn't because they weren't trying to do a good job. And so assume best intent would be one that I would I would I hope I'm grateful that people have provided me that grace and I, I hope I provide others that grace as well.
3: All right. Yeah. Thank. Thank you, Paul. Uh, this is a good reminder for me to reread the Seven Habits. So uh, I've. I. It was a long time ago that I read it, and I'm um, kind we, we of. We could get you
1: a copy if
3: you yeah, want. Yeah. Yeah. That would be good. One of the things you were talking about principles, and you also mentioned uh, transparency. And one book I recently, you know, a few months ago finished was Principles by Ray Dalio. Wow. And um, he talks about radical transparency and how that was one of the key principles that helped his organization, you know, Bridgewater, do what it did. I, I'd just like to see to see get your opinion on how you know transparency maybe helped internally or externally. If that's something that has been just something you've you've always uh, been doing, and and during. Um, during the, especially the transition for you, you into SAS and, and these kind of things, what I, I'd like, if you can just, uh, in terms of transparency, how's that, has that been a, uh, a pretty big thing for, for you and in, in, in terms of Franklin Covey and, and stuff like that. So yeah, thank curious.
1: you. I liked, I liked Ray's book too. On, that'd be a good book to read. Okay. It's not short, but, but uh, I thought that was a good book. Uh, radical transparency, I think is important. In fact, back to the Jim Collins thing again. Uh, we had a, Uh, I had a chance to go over and to Boulder a couple years ago and we sat in Jim's office and we were asking him all kinds of questions about what was, you know, of all the concepts, what was his favorite, et cetera. But he, he uh, oftentimes has executive teams that will come and travel down and meet with him. And he'll, he'll ask them, he'll come in and start the meeting and say, we're not going to talk about anything until you guys put all of the worst, ugliest potential disastrous stuff on the table that you're dealing with right now. What could take you out? And, he, and his advice was that you you know you not in every meeting, but you need to have some times where you're willing to really confront the real challenges that are there that could blow a hole below the waterline. Because uh, if you're not, then you're not re, you know you're not really dealing with the with the with the right issues. Now, don't suggest you do that with every level in the company, right? And, but I think I think transparency is really important. Talking straight is really important. It's hard though, as a leader, right? We, none of us want to go out and and t- say something that's not true or not be transparent, but what we, so instead, what we do, because we're not sure if we can be fully transparent, we kind of will spin, or we'll kind of tell part of it, or, we'll, you know, we'll kind of try to position, it's kind of a counterfeit behavior, right, if being perfectly open and transparent is good, and lying is bad, I know we're not talking about lying, but the in-between is kind of this counterfeit, it's not quite the same, but it, and so I, I think um, it's something to watch out for, for sure, the more transparent you can be, I think the more people Will appreciate it, and I think the more that they can make good decisions, I don't. I don't know what to do if I don't know what the whole picture is, and so I think, generally speaking, transparency is really important. And something you know, we we try we try to do it, but and it's hard sometimes to to feel like you can be fully transparent on a topic. Paul, to rip off the idea, not rip off riff off of the idea of speed of trust. Yeah. Given that you've now. Transition into being a SaaS company or a SaaS empowered company. Do you see the ability for speed of transformation of your firm to become a major market leader instead of being one of lots and lots of training companies out there? Because to me, that's what's interesting. It's a massive market. There is no real quote elephant. If a, am I understanding that correct? You, you, you are. Were you listening into our two-hour board meeting this morning? Um, no, I could have. <laughs> That'd be fun. No, uh, that's so. I think uh, that's what that's what we're that's what we're playing for. Right? Is in an incredibly fragmented industry, something that I don't think we were going to be able to do when we we didn't have the 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 model, the subscription model, the high recurring revenue. That that was an inhibitor to growth. Now that we have that model in place, we've gone through that transition. Now the focus, and we are, we do, we do, thankfully we are quite profitable. We generate a lot of cash. And, and so now that's the next big strategic frontier is how do we, we've done some M&A. It's mainly been tuck in stuff that, that adds capability we didn't have. How do we, how do we, through our own organic efforts and also through the, you know, leveraging the cash that we're generating and leveraging our balance sheet to accelerate growth much more significantly and to really be a not just a market leader maybe in brand and quality of content but a market leader in size and really get out ahead that's 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 what my job is you know the prior ceo had a different job that's what my job is now is to help us figure out how to do that
0: all right paul mentioned to me earlier that he's willing to stick around for a few minutes if that's changed i'm yours cool so i know there's more hands that went up so feel free to ask paul thank you so much for your time learned a lot and it's a pleasure as always Thank you, thanks for your great questions.